The parables are diverse in theme, but for me, the through line through all of them is scandal. It's impossible for us to access parables that we cannot be scandalized by because we approach these texts in the same ways that religious people generally do. We are people looking for a tightly ordered, manageable world. We are looking for a religion like the religion of Job's friends, the kind of religion that sometimes even seems to be underwritten within the scriptural narrative itself in a book like the Proverbs. As long as you do the right stuff, good things will happen to you. But if you mess up, if you break the rules, bad stuff is going to happen. We like that kind of neat, orderly religion because it gives us a sense of control. That's why it's so problematic whenever we come looking to Jesus, hoping that he's going to reinforce our need for order and control. Because the fact of the matter is, the world is far less ordered than any of us have dared to assume. Creation is much wilder. God is much wilder. And the reality of this God that Jesus teaches about it, it always breaks us open through these stories to new possibilities. The only way, though, this does happen is through the disillusionment, is through the scandal, is through the shock of these parables. Now, um, a footnote, by the way, when I hear Christians now talking about various social issues or whatever, isn't it interesting that if you put, say, an evangelical Christian on a news show and you ask them what they think about a particular issue, they're going to be very direct, very literal, very wooden, just go right to the thing. When does anybody ever tell a story? Jesus has this genius way of maneuvering around the question, transcending the framework of the question, and, and, and taking this to an entirely different place. So I didn't plan to talk about this today. This is my Pentecostal roots coming out, um, another one of those spirit experiments that I do sometimes. But I keep thinking about the Good Samaritan, and I thought, I can't talk about the Good Samaritan because everybody, I mean, this, this is the most shop-worn story of them all, because we've heard it too much. It's become too familiar. We can't understand just how scandalous the very phrase, Good Samaritan, is within a Jewish framework in the first century. We're talking about a people who were considered to be a, a bastard people. Um, the idea for Jews of that day is that uh, they're products of an improper, inappropriate union between some Jews and some foreigners. Um, they're considered to have a bastardized religion. They've got within their own memory, uh, within the day of Jesus and his disciples, they're thinking about just a few years before when a group of Samaritans broke into the temple and vandalized it and, and spread bones around it. I mean, they, they hate the Samaritans. And that hatred for the Samaritans seems to be sanctioned by the religion of Jesus' day. People would pray and petition God daily in the synagogue to wipe out the Samaritans, to pray against any possibility of them having any sort of forgiveness. We have all these great phrases in antiquity that I love that are just fun to say now. It's like, you know, he who eats the bread of the Samaritan is like the one who eats the flesh of swine. They referred to the Samaritans as the stupid people who lived down at Shechem. I mean, there's all these horrible slurs. So when Jesus introduces this story, the, the closest thing I have for a parallel, this, uh, I keep thinking about Jesus if he were addressing a group of folks, work with me here, from Westboro Baptist Church. Y'all know the Westboro Baptist folks. These are the people who'd say all the horrible things about homosexuals and protests and the funerals of soldiers and all that. This would be like Jesus telling a parable to the folks at Westboro Baptist about the really good member of the village people. 
And just to, just to make sure this is not misheard, I don't mean like from a primitive tribal culture. I'm talking about the village people, y'all, like as in the YMCC, like, like those village people. I, 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 I'm seeing a character here who, you know, has got like a studded collar and no shirt and a leather jacket. I mean, these are the kinds of images that Jesus would use. So, so provocative and, and offensive. That's what makes room for the grace to come in. So, the, of course, the context for this famous parable is that Jesus is confronted by a young lawyer who asks him the question, what do I need to do to inherit life? And Jesus says, well, you know the drill. You know you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Do this and you'll live. And he says, yeah, of course, I, I get that. I, I already do these things. But Jesus brings up at the end of this, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is where the lawyer has the question. Tell me then, who is my neighbor? And that's where the story begins, where Jesus tells about a man traveling the 17-mile road from Jerusalem to Jericho, the most dangerous road in the ancient world. There were lots of places for robbers to hide and to camp out. So it was common that when people would walk this road, um, that there would be um, something terrible that would happen. So he tells this story about a man who has fallen among thieves. They beat him. They strip him. They leave him for dead. And he's laying there when finally a priest comes by. Probably the priest because a priest within his society would be in essentially the upper middle class, we might say. Probably he's riding a donkey. And he passes on the other side of the street. And when he sees this man, he just keeps going. Part of the way I think we keep ourselves from the, the scandal and the offense of the parables is that we, we want to sort of distance ourselves from these characters. But really, there, there's, there's a sympathetic reading, a case to be made for the priest. We're talking about someone whose very livelihood depends on not getting in close proximity with unclean things. He sees a man who uh, seems to be completely unconscious. Maybe he's dead, maybe he's not. If he just goes to investigate and find out, if he gets within four cubits of the man and he turns out to be dead, then he's now ceremonially unclean. This is a guy who's got uh, quite the day job. It takes an entire week to find a heifer and to prepare it for sacrifice. He doesn't have time to lose. And furthermore, th this is, and this is really problematic for me, the priest, especially within this culture, is actually working with the poor all the time. This doesn't mean that he's not a charitable person generally. It's just that he gave at the office, you understand? Now he's on his way home. This is not part of the vocational ministry gig. If he were to touch this person and he turns out to be dead, not only would he jeopardize his own life and livelihood, but those of people near him. So understandably, he does the respectable thing and he rides on. Then comes the Levite. The Levite doesn't quite have the same status of the priest. He's not bound by quite so many of the same rules. But yet he does have things to worry about here. Probably in the dist from a distance, if he were to see this, um, this priest go before him, if he were to now tend to the man, then that could be seen as some kind of a critique on the priest, which he doesn't want to do. So he's also kind of part of the institutional religion. He rides on. And that's where... Jesus introduced the twist of the Samaritan who comes through, who's moved with compassion, who 
brings out his own oil and wine that note all the way through, all through Jewish history, and of course in Christianity as well, the oil and wine, I mean, this is, um, the, the, the sacramental overtones here are clear. This is, uh, these are elements that have a liturgical use. He uses the oil and the wine to bind up this man's wounds, puts them on his own back, takes them to a hotel, pays for him. And of course, that's where you have that wonderful question. Jesus asks the man, who then is the neighbor? And this person who is a lawyer, who's keeping the rules, he's expert in Jewish law, has to admit the man, not the Samaritan, the man who tended to him, the man who took care of him. What does it mean when Jesus deconstructs all of our assumptions in this way? And the, the hero of the story is the guy from the village people who pushes against all the assumptions, and yet he's the one who uses the oil and the wine in the way that God has always intended. <laughs> he's the one who uses these instruments of the, of the liturgy in a way that cares for the other. He's the one who gets this right. He's the one who binds up the wounds. Like, can you even, I, I find it so fascinating that when we're kind of put on the hot seat about all of the various cultural issues, we never tell stories like this. Actually, I'm not surprised in a way because I heard at a conference not long ago where a speaker said, you know, you've got to be really careful in how you interpret Scripture because, you know, you can't do doctrine through Jesus and the Gospels. <laughs> That's probably the most insane thing. I've ever, one of the stupidest things I've ever heard in my life. You, you, you wouldn't want the Lord of the church to over-influence how we relate to others and to society, you know? That, that, could get, that could get really dangerous. But this is what Jesus does. He always deconstructs. He, the, the, the grace that he presents always comes through the vehicle of scandal. Part of what's so beautiful about these stories, though, is not only are they scandalous, they're multi-layered. And I, I think parables are especially uh, difficult for people who have this assumption that the only thing you need to be able to understand the teachings of Jesus is, you know, a little bit of training and historical critical method, a handful of tools and a little bit of common sense, and anybody can understand what Jesus is trying to say. It's not how it works. The disillusionment creates space where then we need God to reveal truth to us. This kind of truth can't be taught in some kind of a mechanistic way. It can only be revealed to people who understand their need for a teacher. And when we look at this text with a, with a spirit-formed imagination, then we see all kinds of things in a story like this. We see, for example, that, that in a sense, this man who has been, who is now outside the city limits on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, who's been stripped and beaten and left for dead, we look at him from a different angle, from a different perspective, and all of a sudden we see in him an image of Jesus of Nazareth himself who also will be stripped and beaten outside the gates of the city on our behalf. And we understand that then however we treat this man, however we treat the interruptions, that's for me what's so challenging about this text, is that I, I believe that um, in, in addressing justice in a systemic way and that the church should do some of this in a programmatic way, but the kind of thing Jesus is talking about here can't quite be systematized because this is all about what happens when you're off the clock. This is all about whether or not we're living attentive enough to see what God wants to do through the interruptions and inconveniences. 
This is all about whether or not we're going to be able to see. Will we really behold this man? Because if we behold him, if we look long and hard enough, we see in this man the face of Jesus himself. And yet if we kind of shake up the image and we look at it from another perspective, I love the way Augustine preached this text. Once again, this was before we became so enlightened and wise and had the tools and methods to come to the right interpretation of every passage. But Augustine would preach the text this way. He saw in the Samaritan, he saw the Samaritan as being Jesus himself. The man who had fallen among the thieves is Adam. Adam is the one who has fallen. And the law comes walking by Adam but is not willing to quite get close enough to really touch him and to really care for him. So after the law, then come the prophets that walk by, also still regarding the man from afar. So where the law and the prophets would not dare to go, then comes Jesus as the one who binds up the wounds himself and who brings the oil and the wine, which is the, the Eucharistic meal and our baptism. And he tends to our wounds in that way. And we see through this figure of the Samaritan another way in which we encounter Jesus himself. All of these things going on within one story. If we have the eyes to see and we have the ears to hear. I think the question for us is if we're willing to approach these texts once again and be scandalized by them? Are we willing to allow our own sensibilities to be shocked? Are we willing to allow ourselves to, you know, one of the things I found especially tricky with how we deal with these parables or don't deal with these parables, it gets very dangerous to modernize them at all, which is why I think we don't do it. We don't want to make any contemporary parallels because we're scared. We also are respectable people like the priest and the Levite, many of us, whose livelihood depends on not stepping outside of bounds. We have to be really careful how we handle this stuff because if we allow ourselves to once again receive the shock and the scandal of these parables and of the Lord who tells them, it may get us into real trouble. It may disrupt us. It may bring disorder to us. So the question again becomes, are we willing to be shocked? Are we willing to be scandalized? Are we willing to be surprised, are we willing to allow Jesus to take us in the way that he said to Peter would happen, to lead us places that we do not wish to go? Because inevitably, if we follow these stories all the way through, that's what happens. We are taken to places that we would not choose to go. Thank you.